Hi, I'm Joanna Chaundy and you're listening to Series 2 of Baggy Jeans, the podcast, where I chat to the female singers that made the 90s R&B era so unforgettable. We take a nostalgic look back at the music, the industry, the videos and the fashion. So whether you're a newbie to this genre or just want to come and reminisce, tune into Baggy Jeans, where I unpick the seams of 90s R&B. My guest this week used to be a backing singer for Celine Dion, which led her to be snapped up by Arista label owner Clive Davis. She's best known for hits such as Sentimental, Who Do You Love and the power ballad Nobody's Supposed to Be Here. Her voice has been compared to Whitney Houston's and for that reason, Whitney has played a vital part in her career. She is, of course, Deborah Cox. Deborah joined me from Miami and recalled early fond memories of working across the pond. I've had so many incredible experiences out there in the UK and really even before my the, my recording career started, I would go out and um, perform with these different DJs, artists that had like these big house records and they would need yeah. like a, a vocalist to perform. Yeah, that sounds like London. Yes, yes. And so like the early, early 90s, um, I would be out there like cutting my teeth on like club gigs and raves way out in the, you know, the English country. Yeah. And that's probably why you've got so many different remixes to your singles. Oh, yeah. It was like the early, the early house days of, you know, even in Toronto, there was such a great scene for dance music. And I always wanted to have like a record that would play in the cool clubs, you know. And so that was sort of the beginning of my uh, love affair with remixes. Oh, fantastic. Well, I wanted to say you're the first Canadian that we've had on the show, which is a nice change. Ah, Nice. um, Have you ever had a lot of people say to you, oh my God, I didn't realize you were Canadian. I do get that a lot. I do get that a lot. Um, Not as much now because of, you know, the emerge of black, you know, talent that's come out of Canada, but Definitely in the early years when when I moved out to um, to L.A., it was just like, wow, there are black people in Canada. I used to hear that a lot. Really? Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard you say many a time that when you first started out, Canada wasn't incredibly supportive because their music scene wasn't really helping you out at all. Yeah. There was no infrastructure. There wasn't any real black radio. All the labels didn't have departments like you have in the U.S. where they would have the black media department, the black marketing. It was just like very uh, compartmentalized Mm. departments. And the black R&B soul division was, you know, just that. They had a, um, a whole different department and people that worked black radio. And so there was none of that that existed in Canada. Um, none of it was in place. And so it was very difficult for people to, you know, find ways to help support. And so I, I you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want any of that to discourage me. And so we just, you know, I just kept on going, kept moving forward to whoever would listen. And I know that you, you've been in the entertainment industry pretty much almost your whole life, really, from a very, very, very young age. But um, yes. 
how did you become Celine Dion's backing singer? Because that is primarily what really kick-started your music career. Is that right? That's what really got gave me the exposure to get the, the to the right people that would um, essentially hear the demo. Um, being on tour because we had an opportunity to get back out to LA to do Jay Leno and and while we were doing all those television shows we made a lot of contacts and so I was able to follow up with those people and it was through um a producer he was the one who got the uh cassette to to Clive and and the label so that's Clive Davis so you then I yeah. guess you would then had you already moved to the states by then no no I hadn't moved I was literally on tour it wasn't until Clive had really, you know, made the commitment to, when I look back, I'm like, oh my God, it was only six months after I left Celine that we ended up living in, in LA. So it was six months after that, when he committed to like starting the album. And what did you learn from Celine Dion as a backing singer? Because I guess, you know, being a backing singer for her, I guess was almost like a rehearsal for your own solo career really, wasn't it? Getting the experience. Absolutely. I learned a lot about discipline, you know, discipline, 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 saving your voice, taking care of yourself, having a great team around you of people that will keep you grounded and will will tell you the truth, you know, and then just, you know, being a consummate professional. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think Celine was always on her game. She was always like on point vocally when it came to her you know, her image or whatever she wanted to project, it was always with what looked like just perfection. You know what I mean? It Because I, I, it was right in the time where she was just getting comfortable speaking English. You know, this is like 1992. And, cool. um, you know, she was very self-conscious. She was very um, self-conscious about doing interviews in English because she was still like getting the hang of it. So I just watched her determination and just watched her sort of lean on her husband and her manager and her team. And it was through those experiences that I was like, man, I see the kind of dedication that it takes to have that kind of fame, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, man, do I really want that like that? You know what I mean? Like at that level, because it's just, it can really be a constant, like nonstop you know, hamster on the wheel. And for many years after that, once I was signed, I found myself in that position where I had all this success and it was just like nonstop. But I missed a lot of birthdays and I missed a lot of like family engagements and weddings and just time with with loved ones because of, you know, really getting out there to 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 make a mark. So it took a lot of sacrifice. So what was the pivotal moment for you where you decided Actually, I don't want to be at the back anymore. I want to be at the front. Um, I would say probably into, um, yeah, maybe about, you know, four or five months into it when I remember she was getting ready to embark on a on a real extensive North American tour where it was going to keep us on the road like for a good two years. And um, I remember thinking to myself, man, do I want to commit to something like this? Because that's a long time in my mind, you know, not realizing, you know, that it's it's okay. And I was still I was still pretty young, Um, but I really wanted to do my own thing at that point. And it was a real successful gig. You know what I mean? Like it was a great paying job and 
I enjoyed the people, but I just had this, this desire to, you know, write songs and, and kind of formulate my own career as well. And so it was at that point that I, that I left. Because it's quite difficult as I'm sure you know, um, and after watching the the amazing documentary movie Twenty Feet from Stardom, it's so difficult for backing singers to make that that step, and not many of them are successful because they've been such successful backing singers. So, what do you think enabled you to become successful that the others couldn't manage? I think that everybody has their own path. Firstly, you know what I mean. Like, I think. I think in hindsight, I think I would have been just as happy singing backgrounds for Celine or Luther or whoever, because I had big, big dreams as that I aspired to as well. I just wanted to be able to make a living doing music. So it didn't matter who I was backing up. You know, I saw so many successful background singers like Lisa Fisher and and um, and I watched that documentary, too. And like, that's a ama- that's an amazing opportunity when you get like a solid gig with someone that's like touring and you know what I mean you don't ever have to worry about being in the front and having to take all the shots and be super disciplined and make all the sacrifices you know you can just show up for the gig do your thing make your money and go so I was quite happy with that as well I when was the first time you got on stage as a solo artist and kind of looked back at your own backing singers and thought well this is so surreal <laughs> um I think when I was filming the Soul Train, uh, this one of the Soul Train show, like it was this show in the 90s. I don't know if you if you got I'm sure you've seen it on YouTube. Um, But like that was the first time because I remember on Saturday morning, Soul Train used to come on. And that's where I would see all of like my favorite, you know, R&B soul artists perform their new singles and talk about their albums. And for me to be on there doing my own stuff. It was like, that was, that was a real moment for me. And of course, look, any award show or any opportunity to sing your own record is like, to me, like, you know, a huge, huge opportunity. So I just took every thing. Um, I was, you know, for not to be, not to be uh, corny, but I'm a very sentimental person. Like I really take note of every big moment. You know what I mean? I don't let it pass me by without really letting it sit in, in, in gratitude, you know? So your self-titled album, um, your first album that came out in 1995, and I just remember that album over here being huge. And suddenly it was like, who is this powerhouse singer that's just suddenly come onto the scene and sounds like Whitney and is just as good as Whitney and Mariah, but like, who is she? Do you know what I mean? Because you're not getting <laughs> right. as much exposure. But I guess when you moved over with Clive, and mm-hmm. he started introducing you to all the big producers like Dallas Austin, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Vassal. Um, was that when you kind of realized actually now I'm I'm getting bigger and bigger now? And the you know, the budget. Oh yeah. oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember our meeting when he was like, who are some of the you know producers and songwriters that you 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 really you know, would like to work with. And I just named everybody. I just reached for the stars. I was like Babyface, Dallas Austin, Diane Warren. I mean, I literally named everybody that was on the charts and Clive set up sessions with all of them and, and took, you know, meetings and got records for them to play for me. And so it was like, 
either write my own record or get hits from, you know, some of these other songwriters. And so I had the best of both worlds where he he respected me as a singer songwriter. And, and, you know, I got a few songs of my own on the album, but he he let me grow as a songwriter and replaced some of the other songs with, you know, hits from Babyface and Diane Warren and Jam and Loot. Like it was it was really a dream come true, like the perfect, perfect dream come true. And I remember Sentimental see. coming out and it being, yes. oh, that is like, first of all, it had a crazy awesome beat. It was <laughs> different. And that was Dallas that did that. You in Dallas, right? Yeah, yeah. We were in Atlanta for like six months writing and recording and just like catching a vibe. And Dallas was in with TLC. And so it was kind of tough to try and pin him down and get time in the studio, quite honestly, because he was so focused on TLC. Um, mm-hmm. And me being the humble Canadian, like, okay, you know, go do your session. And I would always like put myself, you know, last, but I had to learn through the process to be aggressive about my own vision. And, um, and so we got into the studio, you know, albeit, you know, three, four in the morning, but we got in and we, we, uh, you know, because of uh, spending time and really catching a vibe, we, we came up with sentimental. I just told him some of the records that I liked. And I told him that I wanted like a jazz fused hip hop record. And that was what sentimental came out to be. Amazing track. I mean, a classic. It's just <laughs> not you. dated at all. You know, it's one of those right. tunes you, you put on and it's like it never, ever loses its yes. grip on you. Thank you. But yeah, that was amazing. And you had Omar Epps in the video, didn't you? Yes, that was again another so young. Like, he looked so young. I know. He was so. <laughs> I remember when we had conversations about the video and <clears throat> we we're talking about leading men. And at the time, like Omar Epps is huge, you know, with all of his movies. And I, again, it was just like, oh, my God, Omar Epps, it would be dope if he was the leading man. And that was like the, the kind of thing to do is just like pick these great actors to be the star in the video. And they reached out and he agreed to do it. <laughs> so, so were you nervous like doing that video with them? Because you've never been shy with acting, Deborah, have you? You've always been pretty forthright with that kind of stuff in your videos. So how was well, that first video? I, it, it was my first video was so scary because I had all these high end, you know, this high end makeup artist, high end, like everything was top notch, top notch stylist. And so I really at at one point was pitching myself and not really feeling worthy. You know what I mean? I was just like, God, I'm here and I'm working with, you know, Sam Fine is doing my makeup and Naomi Campbell's hair person just finished doing my hair. And, you know, I got this. Patty Wilson is like a style, like major iconic people in the fashion world. Uh, Brett Ratner directed the video. And I know, you know right? that blows my mind when I, I know. Uh, yeah. Ratner like doing he, that video. yeah, he, he was doing music videos and really got his start doing my videos because he wasn't doing music videos at the time. He was like just breaking. So it was like all these incredible people that were a part of the team to help set the vision and I remember being so nervous because I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to, I wanted it to just be perfect. So 
I would have my meltdown backstage, you know, in the dressing room, and then I'd get back out and, and do my thing. <laughs> that was a great single. But I, I also remember because your second single, um, Who Do You Love? I just remember that being so iconic because you had Janet's right. dancers in it who were yes. all over the place at the time. And <laughs> and it just made all girls in, in that were listening to that want to have a big gang of girlfriends that would just stand behind <laughs> them and dance yes. while you just cursed out on a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it was um, another really amazing moment for the visuals because I'm a huge Janet Jackson fan as well and, and, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And I felt like the only way to kind of pay homage to the greatness of their art was to work with some of the people that Janet worked with. And so I literally got Tina Landon to, to choreograph the video and we got, um, you know, Tish and, and Nikki and and Seanette and, and, uh, and all the girl, Kelly, you know, all of them to, to, to be in it. They, they agreed to do it. You know what I mean? I thought maybe they would have like been on retainer or something. And, but, you know, we just took a shot and, and they were like, no, we'll come do the video. And so it became like this moment just of, of great collaboration. And I think that's one of the things that I remember most. And then Flex also was a big actor, you know, doing a lot of movies and sitcoms and, you know, when he agreed to do it, it was like, okay, my my dream, another dream come true. <laughs> I've always wanted to to know as well. You know, like when you're when you're doing the singing part and you're miming your stuff in the video, but you know when they're kind of arguing with you and they're kind of talking to you while you're singing, what are they actually saying? Are they actually saying stuff or are they just oh miming yeah? Stuff? <laughs> that would really freak me out. Me laugh. Yeah, yeah, they were they were just 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 trash talking. <laughs> just trash talking and I would have to like <laughs> stay so focused <laughs> so that I wouldn't laugh because they would be saying something like just like crazy sometimes like nasty like just shit just shit talking you know and it was, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. so hilarious because when I think back to like all the little inside jokes that we had ju- during the filming of that video it was it's, it was a lot of fun and I and I think that's what I loved most about the moment is that we were really having fun. We weren't just sort of doing a take after take after take. Like there was a real chemistry on set with all of us. And you can tell because I guess I guess um, all of those girls are, are like one big family when it comes to dancers in that industry, aren't they? So um, yeah. you kind of slipped right into that very easily. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I just remember thinking it was just such a glossy, beautiful video. And it was just and I liked the way that ev- everyone was dressed so casually as if they were friends hanging out. You know, it was, wasn't uniform with sexy outfits and everything. It was just. Normal. Oh, my gosh. Girl, I could show you Polaroids, hundreds of Polaroids. I remember the fittings for that video. I did. I probably had about 50 different outfits and we had. I mean, I have all the Polaroids here. Yeah. Of all the different looks. And then when you see that little green Gucci top and the black pant and like the whole, as simple as that outfit was, it was, it just worked. And so just popped you out though. That was amazing. Yeah. 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 And I think that was like the fine line of 
you know, styling. It was like trying to make it look like it wasn't styled, but making it look very youthful and fun and sort of organic. And, and I think they nailed it at the end of the day. Oh my God. It was a stunning video. One of my favorite tracks of yours. It always like makes me happy. (laughs) But where do we go from here? Another one. Now your husband had a hand in this, didn't he? Yes. That was our demo. Now explain, explain who your husband is, Deborah. My my husband, my husband is uh, LaSalle Stevens and coming up in Toronto, he was the songwriter, producer, um, doing a lot of stuff with Glenn Lewis, myself, um, a lot of Canadian artists, maestro, I mean, tons of local talent who some who ended up continuing and some who didn't. And LaSalle's and I just connected. We had a real creative chemistry. We would we could literally finish each other's sentences and we just knew musically where we wanted to go. And we wanted to have music that set me apart. But also, you know, we wanted the songs to say something. And we were also pretty, you know, socially conscious as well. Like it wasn't just about love songs for us. We wanted to write songs that had a message to them as well. And um, Where Do We Go From Here was one of the three songs on the demo. And Clive loved the song and, and had us, you know, record it. We went into the studio and recorded it. And I guess Clive... I mean, Clive loves a ballad. We all know that. But um, yeah. Clive, because obviously he had Whitney, who was the biggest selling artist on his label. But yes, you now explain this. You, you were a huge Whitney fan initially. And I guess I guess she was almost like a kind of, you know, mentor to you. But how did you and Whitney come to work together and how mind blowing must that have been for you? <laughs> Like when I think back to now, like as I'm telling you, I'm just going, God, this is just like a fairy tale story. Um, because because yes. you and Whitney have very similar voices. The track you did with Whitney, yeah. it's kind of hard to tell you apart, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. You know and I'm not saying that lightly, when I, but it is hard to tell you apart. When I listen to it, even myself, I'm like, wow, I now I really understand what people are talking about. And I guess... Listen, growing up, she was the only female, black female artist that was doing what she was doing at the time. In Canada, we never heard anyone else. There was no one else doing pop music like that. You, you know, my, my mother played Aretha Franklin. She played Gladys Knight, Dionne Warwick. Like I heard all of those singers, but there was nobody like Whitney Houston. And when she came on Much Music and I saw that video for You Give Good Love, I was like, who is that? That's what I would like to do. And that was what changed the game. And little did I know, you know, I just feel like it's just like destiny. You know, I feel like, I mean, I ended what up. What happened when you first met her then? How was that? What, what, what I met her scenario at, was it? It was a little nerve wracking because in the press, there was all this sort of comparison. They were pitting us against each other. Who's this really? young? Oh yeah. It was, it was in the New York post and it, it was a little daunting for me because I was just like why are they pitting me against this woman who's already an icon like I'm just you know they're not even giving me a shot out the gate you know what I mean right um so when I met her at Clive's party I was really nervous I didn't know what her reaction was going to be I didn't know if you know what I mean I was so terrified because of the confrontation and then she ran over arms open wide and was like come here girl I've been meaning to meet you and 
you know, was so warm and just like a big sister. And we talked and she, you know, just sort of um, gave me advice about, you know, starting out what, you know, what I should be doing and that kind of thing. And it was just like a really beautiful, engaging conversation. And every time we saw each other and met each other after that moment, it was like we just got closer and closer. So how did the the track come about that you did together? Clive played the song and like, this is a duet. It's a really strong song. Who would you like to do the song with? And I was like, Whitney. When, I mean, I wasn't sure what the dynamic was going to be, what if you know, if she was going to do it. And then later, Shep told me, Shep was like, no, she wanted to do it with you. And I was like, oh, my. Wow. So I think both of us could hear where the story could work. And I think just subconsciously, we were just kind of like, let's let's just do it together. We both have such great chemistry anyway. I mean, every time she was in Miami and when she had her place here, we would connect and you know, like there was a real closeness anyway. So for us to work together was like a no brainer. So what was it like recording it with her then? We did like two sessions. There was one in Miami and then there was one in LA where we finished it up and it was Mm -hmm. both of us in the studio. I really wish we had it recorded. Like I wish, but at the time it was she was really, really, um, you know, she really didn't have a lot of privacy. So we really protected her and protected the session and just made sure that she was super comfortable and that she didn't have anything to prove or anything that, you know, we just wanted it to just be easy going. And that's what it was. It was like the two of us, we went in the studio together and we recorded it together. And I remember feeding her lyrics because she didn't know all of the, the song. But we were just kind of like bantering back and forth like a conversation. And it, and that's how we recorded it. Oh, well, I would have loved to have heard, heard you guys like rehearsing together. That would be amazing. Oh, man. Yeah, it really would have been. Did you get some nice photos, at least, of you both? From that Not book? even photos. No. Oh, man, that's so that crazy. I know. Oh, you've got the memories though, Deborah. You've got the memories. We have the, me- yeah, I, it's just, it's so crazy because everything else I've got copies of, I have like, but that moment was, is just a memory. Yeah. 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 But a good one. Yes. <laughs> now tell me, <laughs> nobody's supposed to be here. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a kind of game changing track for you really, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, and in a big way. Absolutely beautiful, huge ballad. And I bet at the time, I think you were kind of like up against is it Mariah and Mary at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I remember it would, there were a lot of big records. I distinctly remember Lauren Hill, though. 
I okay. remember that 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 song. Um, that thing, that thing, that thing. That song was on the charts forever. Yeah, and it was a hot record. And I remember nobody's supposed to be here going to number one and staying at number one while that record was super hot. It's an amazing. And um, it 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 just shocked me because I remember a lot of program directors saying, oh, that song won't get played. It's too gospel. It's too this. It's too that. It's a ballad. It's this, that, and the other. And then it come to find out the song just stayed on the chart. And I think it just resonated with people. It was just, you know? it was just, it was such an easy song to kind of sing to as well. And it was just simple, but so stunning. Yeah. It was just one of those songs, I think that was really just different. It, you know, there was no other ballad with that kind of production and like real singing like you know at the time it was really really a hip hip hip-hop driven chart at the time it was so I think yeah so I just think it just came out the gate just so different from anything else on the radio you know that one you were soul train award as well right yes yes Incredible. So what, what's been your favorite single of yours to sing? Which one do you like singing live the most? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, it depends on the setting, you know, for me, mm-hmm. singing is singing. So it, 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 it's whatever song the audience is feeling and whatever song the audience enjoys, because I think that's what means the most. You know, I put my heart and soul into what into any song that I sing, whether it's the R&B or the dance or the jazz or, you know, I, I, it's, it's about the connection to me. Because mm. you've had your fingers in a lot of different pies and successfully so as well. And you did Broadway. Um, you did The Bodyguards, didn't you? And you also did the Whitney yes. biopic. Yeah, this this link to Whitney is crazy, Deborah. It's, it is crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. And, and the crazy thing is all of those scenarios were isolated like the 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 movie had nothing to do with the bodyguard musical these were just all completely separate opportunities that happened to be centered around Whitney Mm -hmm. and do you think that's because of the connection with with Arista maybe or just because you know you're both on the same label I think it it came about because maybe my tone was very similar and they knew that you know, I would um, really pay homage and really, you know, do it in a respectful way. I, I was I've never been out to. Especially when the biopic came out, I and Angela Bassett, who was a friend, she asked me to do it. So it was really from that perspective. I mean, I did it for her and I wanted it to sound right. And I wanted, you know, just on a creative level, I wanted it to be represented correctly. And so I was like. Listen, I'm a fan. I want it to be done right. So let me do it. It was basically like that. How do you find the difference with, say, doing theatre as compared to singing, being a music artist? What are the differences for you? Studio and session work, that's really isolating. You know, there's not a real exchange or real energy. You really have to kind of conjure up all of the feelings and emotions and the energy in the studio, which is it's really my least favorite process um the live component which is what broadway is and the live performances that to me it fills me up it's more fun for me because i get to 
collaborate and exchange with other people on stage. And, you know, there's an audience there who's I get a chance to exchange with. So there's just more happening, I think, in the moment. And then live is just like live, you know, there's nothing like it. And I just want to touch on Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Um, yeah, you did just be good to me. When I found out, like, it was quite a long time after that song got released because we it blew up over here with Beats International, their version of it. And oh, okay. When you released it, I thought, oh, this is really weird. What is that? And then I was like, oh my god, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis wrote that track. Insane. Yeah, when you go through their catalog, it's incredible the amount of people that they've worked with and how all of the artists have a totally different sound. And that's why I've been such a huge fan of theirs, you know. I think that that's the sign of a really good producer, you know, is when they can create your own sound for you and make you distinctly you know, make, give you something different than everyone else. And, and I, that's what I loved about their production. And finally, compared to the 90s to now, what advice would you give young women wanting to become singers getting into this game, judged on the experiences that you've had? Um, I would say try to, like, learn the craft or even try to write and find your own voice in the music. I think it's great to be a vocalist, but I think if you can be a writer as well, you you even put your own unique voice and handprint on the music because it's it's you. It, it's coming from you and your spirit and your energy. And I think it'll be better. To, it's better for you as an artist to be, you know, distinctly di- different and unique. And I would say just continue to use, you know, social media the best way that you can to to get that exposure out there because there's so much out there now. It can almost be saturated. So you got to try to find, you know, really di- a lot of different ways to, um, you know, use social media and get in front of, of an audience. And don't be discouraged and don't give up. People will find your music. People will find you. And um, congratulations on being inducted into the Canadian music hall of fame this year thank you thank you and just just quickly was it a bittersweet moment then was it kind of like a I'm really proud to be here or was it a kind of like well screw you guys you never helped me in the beginning (laughs) (laughs) um it's almost like when you're in a a bad marriage you know like you know that you have to go to make change you got to separate yourself and I felt like that's kind of what it was it was like in the beginning no one really knew. There was nothing really set up anyway. So I had to leave to go and make and do, you know, that's what my journey took. It's not that I wanted to. It was just I was kind of forced to because of the circumstance. So now with this induction, I feel like there are other people that can stand on my shoulders and get recognition and and, and feel inspired to to do the same and there's infrastructure there's television shows there's radio there's support now you know which is wonderful to see but somebody's got to be the first that was the inspirational deborah cox 
Join me, Joanna Chaundy, next time where I am joined by a woman whose voice stopped Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston in their tracks. Hello, hello, hello. This is your girl, Kelly Price. I miss you guys so much. You are listening. You are watching the Baggy Jeans podcast. I can't wait to get back there to see you because we haven't sung together in a while. We need a little bit of British. She was a friend of mine. She used what she knew. She lied, cheated, and left me confused. I'm so confused why I haven't been back to London.